Okay, well, welcome back to our class on the Articles of Religion. Uh, we're going to be going into the sacraments today. So that is Article 20 something, 25, page 607, Article number 25, page 607. Microphone a little bit. Okay. Sacraments ordained of Christ be not only badges or tokens of Christian men's profession, but rather they be certain sure witnesses and effectual signs of grace and God's goodwill towards us, by the which he doth work invisibly in us and doth not only quicken, but also strengthen and confirm our faith in him. There are two sacraments ordained of Christ our Lord in the gospel, that is to say, baptism and the supper of the Lord. Those five commonly called sacraments, that is to say, confirmation, penance, orders, matrimony, and extreme unction, are not to be counted for sacraments of the gospel, being such as have grown partly of the corrupt following of the apostles, partly are states of life allowed in the scriptures, but yet have not like nature of sacraments with baptism and the Lord's Supper. For they have not any visible sign or ceremony ordained of God. Sacraments were not ordained of Christ to be gazed upon or to be carried about, but that we should duly use them, and in such as only worthily receive the same have they a wholesome effect or operation, but they that receive them unworthily purchase to themselves damnation, as St. Paul said. Okay, so this is kind of our introduction to sacramental theology in the articles. We're going to get six more articles after this that kind of go into details. Um, this kind of gives us the big picture. This kind of sets the definitions. And definitions are probably the most important thing going on here um, in article number 25. Um, once again, just for some historical background, um, this is one of those things that comes from the early collaborations between the Protestants. So this, this is almost identical from um, one, of the, one of the articles in the uh, Augsburg Confession that the Lutherans use. Um, because again, this is from the very early days of the, uh, of the, of the Reformation. So let's talk first the word sacrament itself. Um, it's important to point out that this is um, an ecclesiastical rather than scriptural term. This is, you're not going to find the word sacrament in scripture, although the Latin for sacrament does correspond to the Greek word for mystery, which we do find in scripture. Okay. So there's correspondence, but the way we're, be, we're using it, and we really have used it for centuries, is, is, is a church use, not something that's defined in the scriptures. That's why you're going to find um, a lot of disagreement about this. That's also why um, if you're coming from a Baptist, the Baptist world, they won't use the word sacrament. They, inter they prefer the term ordinance. And sometimes some folks will kind of go, go to the mat over that. Um, but the important thing here is we're, we, we want to define this so that we can, we're talking apples to apples, you know, so that when we know that when we're talking to each other, when we're talking about it, um, we're talking about the same thing. So originally in, 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 the, in the Roman world, the Latin word for sacrament had really three definitions. First, it was anything sacred or holy. Second, it was a pledge or a sacred deposit. 
And then third, and this is probably the most common use in non-church um, Latin of antiquity, um, it was an oath, especially the oath that the folks in the military would make, the soldiers would make to be faithful. Um, but, but none of these really gets to the sense that we use it in, um, in, 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 the, in the church. Um, and the way that we use it has evolved. We don't see in the early church fathers them using it the same way that we, that we necessarily do today. They used it a lot more generally. Um, so, and, and you kind of find this a little bit when it comes to the mysteries, um, you know, using the, the, the Greek term mystery in, in, the, in the Orthodox world, Eastern Orthodox world, they're not real keen to define numbers because um, they really are kind of tapping into an older way that the early Christian writers were using these words. But, but what happens is we end up in the West, um, trying to really narrow down some definitions. And one of the questions was, what are the number of the sacraments if we're gonna really, really have sacraments? And that is something that's debated for a very, very long time in the church. We don't really see the number seven getting used by the church until Peter Lombard in, in the 12th century or so. Before that, there's a lot, and even then, it doesn't get solidified as that number for a very, very long time. What we do see, though, even with that wider definition and those disagreements over the numbers, um, whether we're talking that really early wide definition in the Fathers or those discussions about the numbers in the West, in the medieval West, um, we do see a special prominence is given to baptism and the Lord's Supper. It's always recognized that there's something special about the Eucharist and baptism uh, for a few reasons. Number one, these are things that are explicitly commanded in Scripture. And in Scripture, we have um, the grace of God is given, um, is assigned to baptism and the Lord's Supper. That, that's why when um, in, in the Anglican world, when we're, when we're kind of uh, working on real ecumenical matters in the, in the 20th century, in the, the late 19th century, and you, you, you may have heard the Lambeth quadrilateral, it's these four things that we've said, okay, these are kind of baseline issues that we would need to, uh, to, to be in communion with another church. And they are the Old New Testament. Um, the, the creeds, the three, the three major creeds, um, the, uh, the historic Episcop episcopacy locally adapted. So basically it might not look exactly the way it looks for us, but we still recognize that there are, are that threefold order of bishops, priests, and deacons, however that looks for you guys. But then the other one is that common baseline of the Lord's Supper and baptism as sacraments. We're tapping into this older approach here. And, and that's also why the reformers did really insist when they're defining the sacraments on baptism, the Lord's Supper. And what happens is, and we, we can see this in, in our catechism, is that the reformers really give a much narrower definition than Rome does at Trent. 
let me turn over to our catechism. You, just, just a few pages before the articles. Um, let's see, I think it might be just before the family prayer section. There we go. Okay, page 581. How many sacraments hath Christ ordained in his church? Two only as generally necessary to salvation, that is to say, baptism and the supper of the Lord. What meanest thou by this word sacrament? Okay, so here we're giving our textbook definition. And this is something that we see most of the, the churches of the, of, the, of the Reformation ended up having a very similar definition. I mean an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace given unto us, ordained by Christ himself as a means whereby we receive the same and a pledge to assure us thereof. How many parts are there in a sacrament? Two, the outward and visible sign and the inward and spiritual grace. So this gives us a very narrow, very narrow definition. We first of all need to have something that does have an outward and visible sign and a very clear inward and spiritual grace. Clear visible sign, clear spiritual grace, and it also needs to be ordained by Christ himself, and it needs to be generally necessary for salvation. That's a very narrow definition. That's much more narrow than um, we get out of the Council of Trent with Rome. So sometimes you'll see kind of more Catholic-minded Anglicans wanting to really argue for that number seven, um, you know, the kind of in the more Anglo-Catholic world and that sort of thing. And then you'll find the other guys aren't wanting to go to that over the number two, but nobody's sitting down and defining terms. So you're kind of talking past each other. And, and so let's, let's talk about those, um, those other five a little bit. And we haven't even really gotten into the whole meat, <laughs> the whole meat yet of the article. Um, okay. So let, let's, yeah, let's look at, let's look at those other five. Um, first of all, we've got confirmation and we're going to look at these a little bit more um, in, in, in depth in a little, in, you know, future articles. But um, so confirmation being the, the laying on of hands and, and, and receiving by the bishop. We see examples of, of kind of proto-confirmation in the book of Acts, but this is not something that Jesus told us to do, right? So it doesn't meet that part, right? It's not something Christ ordained. It's something that grows out of the apostolic practice. Um, it's what's the outward and visible sign of, of a sacrament? Okay, we would say it's the laying on of hands, but later on as the church of hope say, no, it's the oil. Well, we don't have the oil in the, in, in the scriptures. Now, that doesn't mean the oil is wrong, but, but, but you see where the corruption comes, right? Um, what's the inward and spiritual grace? Well, when we're, when we're looking at the book of Acts, um, it is that strengthening of the Holy Spirit. Um, it's related to baptism in some way, you know, that, that, that apostolic fellowship. But to say that it's at confirmation where you receive the Holy Spirit, take something away from baptism that's very clear in scripture, right? So, and you know, one, one of the things that happens is, is we've kind of gotten a greater understanding of, of confirmation. 
um, as we've kind of dug back into some of the ancient roots, a lot of folks in the Western church have said, golly, this is kind of a right in search of a theology. Now, I think they're wrong about that, but, but you can see where the confusion comes. And part of that is because we have taken it out. It's no longer tied directly to baptism as it used to be. There are some good historical reasons for that, right? Um, in the earliest days of the church, baptism and confirmation or chrismation all went together. And, and, and if you see it as being a part of baptism, then that understanding the oil being that symbol of the Holy Spirit makes a lot more sense, right? But again, we see in the scriptures what looks like confirmation in Acts, it's really the laying on of hands. There's no oil involved at all. But, um, but it's, it's tied to that initial conversion, initial baptism. So we start to separate it for two reasons. Number one, we're actually seeing children being raised in the faith and not just converts. In the book of Acts, it's all converts. So um, keeping that laying on the hands by the apostles tied to conversion makes total sense because everybody's a convert. Um, so we've got children being, being, being raised in, in, and it's not really conversion in the same sense. So what do you do with that? Well, in the East, they basically said, oh, and then there's another thing that happens. We, we've kept, because we see it's the apostles that come down and lay on their hands in the, in the book of Acts, we had kept confirmation tied to the bishops um, because the bishops kind of, as we talked about last week, really step in to fill that apostolic role um, in terms of the authority structure, not in terms of the inspiration, but in terms of the authority structure um, as the apostles die, you know, as the ones that are overseeing the church. Um, you know, there's a special grace that the apostles of the capital they have. We, again, we talked about that last week. But as the church is growing, and especially getting out of the cities and into the country, you don't have a bishop everywhere anymore. The bishop's very much an, a city thing. You know, bishops are tied to cities. So once you're in the provinces, once you're in the sticks, what do you do? Well, you send the priests, you send the presbyters and the deacons to go plant churches and go be missionaries. Okay, does that mean that we're going to delay people from getting conversion, converted and, 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 and baptized, being received into the church, until we can get the bishop from the city to go visit every convert in the sticks? So how do we deal with that? Well, in the East, what they said is, what we'll do is we will delegate then both baptism and chrismation to the priests. And we'll keep it as part of the baptismal rite. So they chrismate, you know, what we would call confirmation in the West, they do to little children in the East. So baptism, chrismation, um, you get your first communion all together um, as, as a little child. In the West, we said, no, we want to keep this, this, this connection to the bishops. So we will delegate baptism to the priest so that people can be received into the church. But then we're going to um, as the bishop's able to visit places, then we're going to, to receive through confirmation and the laying on of hands, um, those converts. Um, it's just a different way of approaching the problem, but either way you have, you have a problem. So we've maintained that connection to the, to that apostolic connection, um, that we see in the book of Acts. But, but all of this is to say, you can see why confirmation doesn't really get the same status as baptism, right? <laughs> and it's certainly not generally necessary for salvation. Um, you know, what, what, what do we have next? Um, 
Um, let's let me go in the list that we have here. Uh, penance, confession. Well, in the earliest days of the church, it was something done publicly before the whole church. When you sin, you commit a grievous sin, you confess with the whole sin, the priest kind of issues, whatever the punishment might be. So, okay, you know, you need to refrain from coming to communion for a year and, you know, while you pray and, and repent and all this other stuff, blah, blah, blah. In the West, it starts to get privatized and it starts to become this barrier to all the other sacraments. You know, you, you see the corruption going down. It's no longer... Um, and, you know, and that doesn't mean that that public way was the way that we should do it, but it, 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 it loses its biblical significance, which is getting right with God and getting right with their people. And it becomes a gateway to the rites of the church, a gateway to the sacraments, a gateway to full participation. And it has to be done privately to your priest. Um, it's, it's, it's. You know, and there's some good things. There's some really good things about private confession. I have no problem with that. Um, the way we approach the issue is that the general confession we do in, in, in our services is completely sufficient for um, doing that exercise of confessing before the Lord, confessing before your brothers, even if it's general and not specific. If you've got a if you've got a guilty conscience and you can't get this stuff off your chest, you need to go talk to your priest. By all means, go go see your priest, and that might include private confession. That's fine, um, so that the priest can really bring you to bring the gospel to you, bring you bring your eyes off of you and back to back to the Lord. Um, that's the way we would see see private confession. Now there are some who use private confession is part of their discipline, their, their spiritual disciplines. And that's, that's totally fine. But making it that necessity, private confession to your priest to receive communion is just something we can't see in script in scripture, nor historically. I mean, it's something it develops relatively late, and it's unique to the West. They don't do that in the East. Now, they might have confession in the East, but they don't have it in those very stark um, terms in the East. Um, so that's penance. Uh, orders, holy orders. Um, certainly we see some form of ordination in the scriptures. We can even say that Jesus appointed, because he appointed the first apostles, he did in some way institute this. And we can say that for those who receive the call to the ministry rightly, there is grace. Um, no, no doubt about any of that. Um, but in terms of our very narrow, narrow definition, the question would be, What's the outward and visible sign? What's the inward and spiritual grace? These things are get very confused over the centuries. Is it the laying on of hands by the bishop? That's what we would say. Um, but, you know, at certain times in, in Rome, they would say, no, it's the receiving of the, of the, of the symbols of the priesthood, you know, the patent and the chalice. That's, and, you know, and, and these things change and we don't see consistency. Um, and again, it's not generally necessary for salvation. You know, you don't got to be ordained to be in good standing with God. <laughs> you know, it's a calling for certain people. Um, matrimony, same thing. There's definitely a grace there. There's definitely a picture there. Um, but what's the outward invisible sign? You know, we don't have anything consistently, right? Um, and again, not everybody's married. The Lord and many of the apostles weren't married. It can't, you know, it doesn't meet that very narrow definition. 
Um, extreme unction, we would probably today call that anointing of the sick. We, we are told in, in James' epistle um, to call for the elders if you're sick and have them come anoint you and you can confess and, and all this other stuff. Um, there's some question as to whether the anointing aspect of that was specifically apostolic or if that's for all time. Uh, but it gets again kind of corrupted into if you're dying, you go get your priest so that he can anoint you and give you communion before you die. Well, that, that again, that's not the pattern we see in scripture, right? If you're sick enough to go to the to be in the hospital, you probably ought to call your priest. You know, I mean, that you know, if, if it, it doesn't have to be in that case of death. So we we can see how these kind of kind of um they don't meet that narrow definition. Do we have to have the narrow definition? Um, maybe, maybe not, but it works for us and it's worked for us for hundreds of years. And it has worked for everybody from the Reformation. And one of the things that I would say that it does is it keeps, it, it safeguards us from falling into some of the corruption that we, that we were fighting at the time of the Reformation. Um, baptism and the Lord's Supper had really lost major significance in, in, by the time of the Reformation. The laity were hardly ever receiving communion, maybe once a year. Um, that goes to the last part of this about not to, they were ordained of Christ. They were not ordained of Christ to be gazed upon or carried about, but that we should duly use them. That's very much talking about this corruption of the sacrament of communion that we see in the Middle Ages, where um, the laity are no longer partaking of communion, they're no longer eating and drinking, which is what Jesus commanded. But now they're gazing upon the sacrament as the priest parades it about in the monstrance and carries it about. Um, and they're only taking spiritual communion. Well, we don't see anything like that in the scriptures. We just don't. Um, yeah, so, you know, the, the way we, we've dealt with this, I would say, does kind of safeguard these things. But let's go back to the very first paragraph um, again, today, today, this is all about definitions, right? And we'll get into some more details in the next several articles. Okay, so ordained of Christ, the sacraments ordained of Christ be not only badges or tokens of Christian men's profession, but rather they be certain, certain sure witnesses and effectual signs of grace and God's goodwill towards us by the which he doth work invisibly in us. And doth not only quicken, that means make alive, but also strengthen and confirm our faith in him. What that's saying is that the sacraments are not just symbols. Um, there's actually something spiritually going on there for those that are going to receive the sacraments rightly. They are uh, witnesses to, to, to the grace that they proclaim. Um, that's one of the that's that's one of the dangers of um, you know when, when we baptize our children we're we're saying we're going to raise them in the faith and the baptism being a witness you know you making it like a cultural thing where I come in I get my kid baptized and I never show show up in church again because hey we're we're Episcopalians we're Anglicans that's what we do with our kids. Um, that baptism is a witness against you and because you made false oaths to the Lord. And it's in some ways a witness against your child who you said is going to be a Christian and then they're not. You know, but at the same time, 
for those who are walking in the faith, it's a witness of your faith. When you're doubting your faith, you say, oh, wait a minute, I am baptized, I belong to the Lord. You know, it's a witness of your faith. Uh, same thing, same thing when it comes to communion. Um, you know, what's why Paul says when we receive it unworthily, we're eating and drinking damnation. Um, we'll talk about that in future articles in some more detail. So um, they're witnesses, but they're effectual signs of grace. The grace that we get in our baptism and in the Lord's Supper is conveyed by baptism in the Lord's Supper. That's the way that God uses, he uses those signs to give us the grace there. Um, and the catechism talks about that in more detail. We'll talk about that more in um, next week and probably the week after that. Um, what else? So he, he uh, quickens us. That, so that means he, 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 the, that's, he uses the sacraments to make our, our faith alive, but also to strengthen our faith in him. Okay. Um, I think I've hit the main thing here in terms of definitions. Um, questions, comments. Um, I don't have my ears in for those of y'all on Zoom, so I can't hear y'all's comments. I might be able to read a, something typed, maybe. It's a very small screen, maybe. Uh, but those of y'all here, if y'all have anything. And if not, that's totally cool too. I'm, I'm gonna give... Uh, the one flipping through just a couple minutes here. Yeah. So those those of y'all watching on Zoom or or listening on the recording later on, um, the comment here from Pam was. You know, she was looking at the catechism. Yeah, use the articles in the catechism in, in, in concert here. And we'll, we'll be looking at the, you know, we already looked at the catechism's definitional statements in the conjunction with this. We'll look at the same as we get into the individual sacraments too. Um, yeah, the, the articles, uh, the catechism, the, the, the prayer books, rites themselves, they really all do kind of go together. Um, it, it teaches us. I was meeting with a, um, a fellow who's a, a former Roman Catholic priest who's coming into our diocese uh, just the other day. And, um, you know, they sent him to me to kind of talk liturgy, get some liturgy coaching. And um, it's like, you know, this, the, this prayer book, this is, uh, this is your rule of life. I mean, this is, if you got your prayer book, your Bible and your hymnal, you can do everything you need to do as a priest. Um, you can do everything you need to do in church. Um, we don't have to have all this outside stuff because this really gives us, it, it's simple. It's not difficult, but it, 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 it distills those scriptural truths down to this is how we live them. So yeah, that's real good. All right. Well, I think I'm going to go ahead and call it a night then. We are just under 30 minutes and um, God bless you guys. Thank mm -hmm. you.